everyone and welcome to this, the fourth episode in our podcast series, The Fraud Files, Decoding the Economic Crime Act. My name is Susanna Cogman. I'm a partner in the Corporate Crime and Investigations team here at Herbert Smith Freehills in London. And I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast series. And I am delighted to be joined today in what is a uh, kind of crossover episode with our financial services regulatory team by Jenny Stainsby, who is a partner in that team. Uh, welcome, Jenny. Thanks, Susanna. So on this episode, and this is the first of two where we're going to be talking about some issues which are specific to the financial sector uh, and which come out of the failure to prevent offence. Um, in this episode, we're going to be looking specifically at authorised push payment, uh, APP fraud, uh, which has been a sort of particular concern uh, for, um, for the regulator, for many financial services firms, and there's been questions that have been raised with us about how, if at all, the failure to prevent fraud offence is relevant to this. And so we thought it was worth a freestanding discussion um, and as I say, in a later episode, we're going to be talking more generally about failure to prevent fraud in the financial services sector. Uh, so uh, if I can ask Jenny to kick us off, perhaps by for those who aren't familiar with this topic, uh, telling us just uh, what APP fraud is and why it's a particular area of focus at the moment. Thanks, Susanna. Sure. Um, so, so I think the context is important. Uh, fraud is widely recognised as the most common crime recorded in the UK, accounting for over 40% of all offences in England and Wales. And the financial services industry body, UK Finance, produces an annual fraud update. So in 2022, they find that about 40% of fraud losses in the UK, so that's amounting to uh, about half a, half a billion pounds, were attributable to authorised push payment or APP fraud. So that's the context. APP fraud essentially involves a criminal tricking their victim into sending money to an account which the criminal controls. And it can take a number of different forms. And the common examples are purchase scams, so where the victim pays for goods or services that they never receive. And often those involve purchases on an online marketplace or uh, in a, a, an advert posted on social media. Investment scams, uh, often offering returns that are better than the norm. Uh, there's impersonation scams where the criminal purports to be from the victim's bank or from the police and persuades the individual to move their money to another account and that account being controlled by the criminal. Uh, and, and romance scams where the victim's persuaded to move money to an account of someone they believe they're in a genuine relationship with. And the common thread in all those circumstances is that the victim makes the payment. And this can be contrasted with unauthorised fraud where the victim doesn't authorise the transfer of money from their account. So for example, a criminal using a stolen credit card or PIN number. Okay, so we have a really important fraud typology, which is doing a lot of damage to customers in the UK at the moment. And you might think from an offence called failure to prevent fraud, this would have something to do with uh, um, preventing this sort of criminal activity. Now, without wishing to um, get to the punchline too quickly, 
the short point to bear in mind here when we're looking at this solely through the lens of the Economic Crime Act and, and importantly, Jenny, I think you'll tell us a bit more later about other ways in which we should be thinking about APP fraud. But if we're looking at this purely through the failure to prevent lens, um, listeners uh, will be aware, hopefully if they've listened to our previous episodes, that the way the offence works is that you have um, an associated person who commits an offence of fraud. Um, they are an associate of the, the company, which is potentially liable, um, and they must commit the fraud intending to benefit uh, the company or uh, a, a customer of the company. Slightly more complicated than that in terms of the intention test, but that's the broad thrust. Now, in an APP context, with the sorts of frauds that, Jenny, uh, you've just been describing, the fraudster is not going to be an associated person of the bank. They're not an employee, they're not a subsidiary, uh, they're not an employee of a subsidiary, and they're not someone who is providing services for or on behalf of the bank. Um, and when they commit their act of fraud, uh, defrauding the bank's customer, they're not going to be intending to benefit the bank or a customer of the bank. And so for both those reasons, this is actually not conduct which the uh, failure to prevent offence is going to bite on um, and which therefore um, would need to be for these purposes addressed by the company's reasonable prevention procedures to provide a defence because it's just not conduct of a subtype which is in scope at all. Um, and so that leaves us with a slightly odd situation where we have a uh, widespread fraud typology which seemingly won't be impacted by the new offence. But, um, and here is the important, obviously, punchline uh, for the financial sector, um, there are other steps uh, which are being taken to address this separately. And, and Jenny, could you tell us a little bit more about what's going on outside that narrow failure to prevent space? Yeah, ab absolutely. There, there are a number of initiatives ongoing to tackle APP fraud. Um, and um, some of them you will have seen, there's a TV advertising campaigns being launched in the last few weeks, encouraging the general public to look out for scams generally, but including APP fraud. Um, and coming out of the government's fraud strategy, which was launched in May last year, um, there's the online fraud charter, uh, which was uh, came out in November. So this is a voluntary agreement between government and technology sector to reduce fraud on technology platforms and services. And then that's really important because the UK finance report that I mentioned before, it indicated that in 2022, 78% of APP fraud started online. So important that the whole uh, ecosystem is, is being looked at. One of the commitments in the fraud charter uh, related, relates to advertising, and that bolsters the existing arrangements whereby platforms have committed not to allow paid for adverts for financial services in the UK that aren't approved by an FCA authorised firm. And there are also requirements on payment service providers to report data to the payment systems regulator, and they publish that data showing how much money has been sent and how much received by the largest banking groups as a result of APP fraud 
and how much those uh, institutions have reimbursed their customers of that. So creating more transparency um, around the numbers. But really the big change that's coming, and it's coming into effect in October this year, is the new mandatory reimbursement requirement. And it's been heralded by the PSR as a world first. Um, we, we've had a voluntary reimbursement code in the UK since 2019, and 10 of the largest UK payment service providers are signatories to that voluntary code. Under the code, they investigate and where appropriate reimburse customers who report APP fraud to them. But in October, the reimbursement requirement becomes mandatory um, and it brings many, many more firms into scope. So the PSR has said that from the 10 current uh, groups uh, that are signatories to the voluntary code, under the mandatory system, there will be over 1,500 PSPs in scope. And the payments systems regulator's stated objective is to incentivize greater investment by those firms in end-to-end fraud prevention. The basic premise of the reimbursement requirement is that sending PSPs must reimburse all in-scope customers who fall victim to APP fraud in most cases. And the cost of that reimbursement will be split 50-50 between the sending firm and the receiving firm. There'll likely be a maximum mandatory reimbursement level of £415,000 per claim. And that aligns, um, you will know, with the Financial Ombudsman Services Award limit, um, although PSPs can choose to reimburse above that level. I said that it's likely to be the maximum level because the PSR has said that it will monitor the incidence and impact of high value scams in coming months and may consult on revising the level if there's, a con if there's convincing evidence uh, before the October start date. So in addition to the maximum level, there is an excess. So PSPs may, but don't have to apply an excess of up to 100 pounds uh, to claims. Um, that excess doesn't apply to vulnerable customers, and there are protections in the scheme for vulnerable customers. Importantly, to be reimbursed, customers must exercise a standard of caution, and if they don't, the PSP may not have to reimburse them. But I think really important to say that the bar is very low for consumers and very high for PSPs. The burden of proof is on the PSP to show not only that the consumer failed to meet one or more of the elements of the standard of caution, but also that they've done it with gross negligence. So it does seem likely that, as the PSR has said, most cases will be reimbursed under the new scheme. Thank you, Jenny. And uh, as any of our listeners who know me will know, I'm a little bit of an AML geek, so I will feel forced to say at this stage that as well as uh, all of those steps that you've just outlined in relation to anti-fraud controls and uh, the reimbursement mechanism, uh, the FCA expectations in relation to fraud risk management also, of course, overlap into AML obligations. Um, as firms will also need to mitigate the risk that they're used to receive the proceeds of fraud. So the FCA's October 2023 paper on detecting and preventing money mules is a great example of the focus on, on that particular space. Uh, so for anyone who's not read that, that looks at good and bad practices in areas such as onboarding systems, uh, transaction monitoring in particular, uh, doing more to monitor inbound as well as outbound payments 
uh, and reporting and information sharing mechanisms uh, to try and you know prevent detect report etc those uh, mule accounts which are used to, to receive and, and then transfer on uh, the proceeds of APP fraud. But, but Jenny, kind of coming back to you, APP fraud, uh, of course, isn't just an issue facing the UK. So are other jurisdictions taking the same sort of approach as, as what you've just described? Well, it's, it's absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that it's not just a UK problem, but regulators are taking different approaches in different jurisdictions. So um, if you take Hong Kong as an example, the Monetary Authority is looking at facilitating greater information sharing. And in Australia, the government's looking at mandatory industry codes. Where we're probably closest to the UK approach of introducing a reimbursement requirement is in the EU. Um, that, uh, that's being uh, brought in as part of the current ongoing reforms uh, of payment regulation in the EU. The original proposal focused on impersonation fraud only and like in the UK, uh, the financial accountability fell to payment service providers. But there are some changes that will potentially come in um, and the proposals that are to expand potential liability to communications firms, so it's not just sitting with, the, uh, with banks and payment service providers. So the proposal is that pay, uh, communications firms would be required to put safeguards in place to ensure customers don't get defrauded and if they fail to put those in place they would also be held financially accountable. Now that's still all under consultation discussion and it's likely to be a few months before we see where it lands but the concept of shared liability is one that others are looking at as well including in Singapore where there is a proposed shared responsibility framework which recognises the concept of shared responsibility between payment service providers mobile network operators and consumers and seeks to create greater clarity on respective duties. That's really interesting and I guess it'll be interesting in due course once data is available down the line to see which if any of those uh, approaches have the best effect in terms of reducing levels of APP fraud if, if it's possible to attribute that to particular causes appreciating there'll be a number of, of drivers. Okay so what should, a uh, very broad question, what should banks be thinking about um, in the context of all the changes that you've just uh, described? Are there any kind of key steps they should be taking now or, or planning for? Absolutely. So there's inevitably going to be a lot of work to do to get ready for the mandatory reimbursement requirement, which is due to come into effect on the 7th of October. And that will involve changes to firms' own systems but also putting in place arrangements to facilitate this 50-50 split between sending and receiving firms. Personally, I'd also strongly suggest that firms are engaging with the ombudsman to ensure that there's common understanding about the expectations under the scheme. This hasn't been the case in the context of the voluntary code, where we've seen that the ombudsman has been upholding complaints that have been rejected by the code signatory. So really important, I think, that those conversations are taking place before the new uh, mandatory scheme comes into, into effect. A key criticism of the reimbursement requirement is that it's effectively a compensation scheme. So closing the barn door after the horse has bolted. The PSR, as I said earlier, has said that it sees it as, a re as an incentive to improve 
fraud prevention. But I think there's a real risk that instead it increases moral hazard with customers taking less precautions, for example, if they're buying things online. And I think that's why it's really important that it's not the only tool that's used to tackle APP fraud. Another, as we've discussed, is consumer education, and I've mentioned the consumer awareness campaign that's ongoing. Um, and also the Treasury has committed to legislate to provide clarity on firms' ability to make risk-based delays to payments, and that's intended to support fraud prevention efforts. So, Susanna, you, you mentioned earlier the FCA's paper on money mules, um, and, and it's unsurprising the FCA is active in this area, uh, given fighting financial crime is one of its priorities. It, it also put out at the end of 2023 a review of firms' fraud controls and complaints, which provided guidance on good practice and called out areas where firms could do more to strengthen their systems designed to detect and prevent fraud, including APP fraud. Um, and, and in early February, the FCA also published a long list of work relating to fraud prevention, noting that it itself had increased its own capabilities with the recruitment of over 70 new staff since 2022 in this area. So there's a lot going on, but with fraudsters adopting ever more sophisticated tactics, the approach of firms and regulators needs to continue to evolve as well. And we see that with the increasing use of tech um, to assist in fraud prevention, including the use of behavioral biometrics and uh, synthetic data. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, really interesting. And um, we will put links to those FCA publications that we've been mentioning, as well as some of our briefings on the subject of APP fraud in the in the show notes, as I believe it's called. Um, so uh, I think just to, to wrap up, um, we have uh, failure to prevent announced as a key measure to combat the so-called epidemic of fraud. We find that the offence probably has comparatively little impact, at least from a financial sector perspective, on uh, a very um, large proportion of financial fraud in the UK. But we have a lot of regulatory work and focus on different aspects of uh, that type of fraud uh, and a need to do work uh, separately from your FTP project to prepare for that. And I suppose that does just raise a question similar to one we were debating uh, when we had the jurisdiction episode about how broadly you frame any project that you might be putting in place to address the Economic Crime Act. So are you going to focus it narrowly on the type of conduct, which is the focus of the failure to prevent offence, or are you going to look more broadly at your counter-fraud controls, given that that is a key area of regulatory attention and what is the most efficient way to do that. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We will be back with our next episode shortly, which I believe will be on the subject of associated persons. And in the interim, thank you all for listening and thank you very much to Jenny Stainsby uh, for joining me.